Welcome to the New Beginnings Community Church Podcast. Here at NBCC, we welcome the imperfect, flawed, and broken, as much as the healing and thriving, because we are all God's children. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Hello, everybody. Uh, We're back, and uh, we're raring to go. Uh, We have been in this series, Cultural Quicksand, for... uh, Four weeks is going to be our fifth week, I believe, and um, we're going to continue to take on some difficult topics and try to bring uh, and try to bring to light some of the quicksand that is out there culturally in, in our society today. <clears throat> uh, this message is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I think they all have been a little bit different, um, but it's called the land that I love. The land that I love. Um, I'm concerned about the future of America, have been for a while, because it's the land that I love. Well, and, I, and it's not based on what's happened in 2020 at all. I'm concerned about um, what's been happening for the last 47 years. That is my great concern, um, because there's been a very negative precedent set in our nation that has some biblical ramifications. And so I am concerned. I'm concerned for this nation, for the nation that my kids are growing up in and now my grandkids are growing up in. And I think you should be too. And like I said, it has nothing to do with 2020. It has to do with the last 47 years. This might be the um, most sensitive topic of all in this series, and uh, let me just tell you that in no way, in no way is it my desire to bring pain or trauma or more trauma to anyone. We want to be healers here at New Beginnings. We want to see people's lives changed. One of my dedications in my life is the healing of people's emotions, emotions that have been hurt from past decisions and what people have done to them. That's always been my goal. And the topic that I have tonight, um, we have a ministry that, well, ministers directly to the pain and the trauma of this particular topic. And uh, the topic doesn't affect just one gender, female, it affects males also. Um, And so I'm here to try to help, but it is a topic that uh, I think needs to be brought to light at least spoken on. It wasn't in the original five messages of this series, which is now a seven-week series. After today, we'll be two more weeks of it, then we'll move on to a new series. Uh, What happened to me was, and this has happened a few times in my uh, decades of preaching, I had gone away with my wife and a few other people. We took off for a week. Part of it was to celebrate my wife and I's 39th wedding anniversary. And we had a great time. We really, really did. But you know, on vacation, you kind of like to sleep in. Because it's vacation. Well, one morning, uh, God woke me up really early. And uh, just started popping thoughts in my mind. You know, it's one of those mornings when you'd like to continue to sleep, but all of a sudden your brain's popping. And these, these thoughts won't go away. And I keep getting impressed with it. And so 
Finally, I realized, okay, God, I'm going to get up now, and I'm going to get out my pad and pen and everything. I always take everything with me wherever I go. I'm going to start writing down notes. And I did. And I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And God kept dropping thoughts and dropping thoughts and dropping scriptures and dropping thoughts and dropping scriptures. And this message is a result of that morning. I took, brought the notes home eventually, typed them out in a format that hopefully will make a lot of sense. Now, I like to say in every one of these messages, if you uh, disagree um, and you're a follower of Christ, hey, bring me the scriptures. I'll be glad to study them. But I, I, I'm not going to go with what a person feels and what a person thinks if it's contrary to the word of God. Our pursuit should be truth and truth only. If you're not a follower of Christ, you disagree with some part or all this message, it's okay. You can still come to church here. I'm, I'm cool. You're not going to offend me. I'm surely not going to be angry with you. I'm not going to cut you off. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm a grown-up. You're a grown-up too. We can still be friends. No problem. No problem whatsoever. Now, you're probably wondering... What topic are you going to speak on, Jim? Or maybe you've already figured it out. Well, the topic for today is simply the unborn child in the womb. And that's a hot potato in our country. And as usual, like I said, I will be biblical. Now, before I get into this, <clears throat> let's go through our key verses for this series. They're found in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. And let me read them to you. Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. What's Jesus saying? He's simply saying this, that when you hear God's word, read God's word, taught God's word, if you take that and you act on it, meaning you, you, you live it, you, you act on these things, you behave in this manner here, you follow these truths, guess what? That when the problems of life, when all the winds of thought come along, you're not going to be shaken. You're not going to be moved. You're not going to fall apart. You'll have calm in the middle of any storm, of any thought that's contrary, you'll stay founded on that rock, Jesus Christ. But he says the flip side is true. That if you hear all these words, taught these words, no matter how many months or years you're in church, read the Bible, and you don't act on these things, well, then you're not built on rock. You're built on sand. And when problems come, you'll probably just walk away from church or God for a while or whatever. And when different winds of thought come through social media or whatever outlets there are, a friend at work, whatever, you'll bend to that, agree to that, instead of staying firm on what this says. And that kind of life, Jesus says, when all the floods come and winds of thought come, that house won't stand. Because you're built on the wrong foundations. So we reduce this whole, these four verses into a statement that is foundations 
form futures. Now, that's a very important statement that foundations form futures in many, many respects. But I'm going to begin today with a foundational passage for this message. So if you have your Bibles or your app, turn to Psalm 139. And I'm going to read verses 13 through 18. I'm going to make a few comments about a few things, but when I'm done, then I'm going to go back and pull out things and give it a fuller understanding so you see what David, the writer, is saying as he references back to himself in his mother's womb and how that relates to God. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. When he uses the word fearfully, he says that's an intrinsic value that a person has, that you are valuable, period. God has placed that in you because you and every human being is created in the image and the likeness of God. Isn't that cool? And then he says, wonderful are your works. When he says wonderful are your works, speaking of himself and all life, it means that you have a distinguishing difference about you. There's something unique just about you that God has stamped just on you. Isn't that something? And then he adds in verse 14, and my soul knows it very well. You need to know this. You need to understand what God says about you. That's a solid rock foundation. That's your source of security and identity. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Talking about in his mother's womb. And skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. When he says depths of the earth, metaphor for his mother's womb. But he skillfully wrought. Skillfully means to embroider. It's needlework. Some of you, you do needlework and embroider. You do fantastic designs. And that's what God is saying. He embroidered us. He made you so unique. That's something. Verse 16, your eyes, meaning God's eyes, have seen, you've seen my unformed substance. We'll get to that later. And in your book were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. <laughs> if I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Whoa, what a fantastic passage. And I thank God that David wrote down these words. And they're in the canon of Scripture. Now let me break down a few other things from these verses. When he says in verse 13, when he says, you form my inward parts, it's the idea of the foundation of being. It means spiritual and physical exist in the womb of the mother. Both that physical and that spiritual part of that person exists there. When he says, you wove me in my mother's womb, it means that God is with the child at the moment of conception and beyond. Isn't that something? All, of, all kids at the moment of conception, conception created the image of God. God's with them and beyond. Then he says in verse 15, 
God sees my frame. Verse 16, you see my unformed substance. What's he talking about? He's saying you're there with me as my unformed limbs are forming. You're watching me grow in my mother's womb, not fully formed yet, but you're with me as I grow, as I develop, until I finally come to that birth canal. Man, you're with me, God. Isn't that something? Verse 16, I love this. He says, I have days ordained for me by God when as yet I haven't even experienced a day of life yet. What's that mean? It means God, at the moment of conception, who creates the child and gives you identity. You're creating the image of God. God has a plan for that kid's life and all kids' lives when as yet they haven't even existed for a day. Isn't that something? Oh, it's an important passage, isn't it? Verse 17, 18, and then he finishes off by saying, you think about me a lot, God. And God thinks about you a lot. And God thinks about the unborn child a lot while that child's in the womb. In fact, David says, your thoughts toward me are like the sand of the seashore. It's innumerable how much God thinks about that child and thinks about all of us. So what do we draw from these verses here and others in the scriptures? That life, all life, begins at the moment of conception. All of them do. In fact, biologists now would agree that life begins at the moment of conception. Now, the culture of which we have to deal with. Let me read uh, one person's comments. And this is, well, let me just read them to you. This person is a, a Princeton, was a Princeton, I think he still is, Princeton bioethicist. His name is Peter Singer. Here's what he writes. The culture says. There is no reason to think that a fish suffers less when dying in a net than a fetus suffers during an abortion. Did you hear that? Hence, the argument for not eating fish is much stronger than the argument against abortion. That's crazy. And then he, in an earlier writing, Peter Singer writes, the life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Now, that's shocking to hear it, but let me say this. Don't be too hard on him. Why not, Jim? Oh, wait a minute. You got to remember why he would think that way and why some in the culture would think that way. Because they believe that everything's naturalism, that there is no God, there is no creator, the creator did not create us. They believe the universe created them. They believe a mindless, unguided, through random processes, universe created them. And therefore, they don't look at humans any different than animals and animals any different than humans. That's the way they see it. So don't be too hard on them. That's why they think that. See, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says this. I'm not trying to defend them. I'm just trying to show you. Don't be too hard on them because remember, it says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, guys, think about it. If a person is not a follower of Christ, 
They do not have the Spirit of God living in them through regeneration, not born again of the Spirit. They're blinded by the God of this world who is Satan. We were all there, every one of us. And you've got to remember that. And that's why they look at life that way. They're blinded. I was blinded. You were blinded. We all looked at certain things the wrong way, and we come to Christ, and then we saw things the correct way, the biblical way. Now, <clears throat> but here's my concern for the land that I love. Here's my concern for my kids and grandkids and Lord Terry's, my great-grandkids in the land that I love. And please listen. Please. Listen to everything I'm going to tell you from here on out. In Joshua chapter 6, in verse 21, and I could have picked other verses, but I'm just, I just picked this one. It says this. This is when they come to Jericho, Joshua, and the army has crossed over the Jordan River. Jericho there looms in the horizon. And God says, go wipe it out. Watch verse 21. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. They go in there and they destroy everything and everyone in Jericho at God's command. And this is where some people have a beef with God because they don't know the background of the story. Because we hear the question. You've heard it. How can a loving God do this? You know what the answer to the question is? The answer to the question is the reason why I have concern for the land that I love, America. Let me give you three thoughts. The answer to the question, how can a loving God do this? Number one, because the people living in Canaan were sacrificing babies. Yeah, they were. Let me explain it to you. When they get to the promised land, Joshua, the people that have been living there, they've been doing terrible, ugly, ugly things. Really bad sin. One of the ugliest sins. They had an idol by the name of Moloch. And they would heat Moloch up. He had like a hole in his belly where they put fire in there also. But they'd heat this, this idol up and his arms were out. And they would take their living babies alive. They'd put them on the burning hot arms of Moloch. The babies are screaming. They would beat their drums really loud, loud, so they wouldn't hear the babies scream as they were dying, burning up alive. They roll those babies into the fire of the belly. That's what they called pass through the fire. You see it so many times in the Old Testament as it pertains to Moloch and sacrificing babies alive. That's what they were doing. That's what makes me so nervous. That's what gives me concern for my country. They're sacrificing babies alive. See, Satan, and understand, Satan, you got to look in a spiritual world. you got to look past the physical. He hates humans. They're created in the image of God. He hates them, and he's always tried to kill the babies, always tries to kill the babies. <clears throat> but the second thing is this, and that is God gave the people in Canaan four 
hundred years to repent. In Genesis 15, 16, it says this. God speaking to Abraham, he tells him about the fu- a future event. He says, then, he prefaced it by saying, your people will go into bondage. And then he says, then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What, what's going on there? If you read the whole chapter, you find out that God says, look, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. But this great nation is going to go into bondage, into slavery in a foreign land. But after four generations, we know that as a little over 400 years, because we look back at the story. After over 400 years, you're going to come out of there. We know it's Egypt. They come out of there. And the reason why is because the sin of the Amorites is not complete. But what's going on? What's happening? Among a few things, this is happening. God used the 400 years that the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. He used that to give the people in the land of Canaan who were committing all kinds of sins, including sacrificing babies, 400 years to repent. 400 years to repent. And then God says, I got to do something about it. They're not changing. I don't know about you. That gives me concern for the land that I love. That kind of puts fear in me. That things are getting kind of shaky now. How long? The third thing is this. People complain about God's inactivity towards evil. You hear this, and let me me try to show the illogic of their logic. This fascinates me. It really does fascinate me. But listen closely to what I want to tell you. People say, if there is a God, why doesn't he do something about, and then they point out some evil in the world? Don't they do that? And then when God does something about evil, like in Joshua, what do they say? They say, oh, how can a loving God do this? Which is it? Because you can't have them both. You cannot have them both. Listen, listen, listen to this statement. Why is it when God decides to take a life, he's immoral, but if someone decides to abort a life, that's their moral right? Let's say that again. Why is it? When God decides to take a life, he's immoral. But when somebody decides to abort a life, that's their moral right. Makes no sense. None of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. Listen. In America, and other countries too, but in America, we're very fortunate God is patient. We're very fortunate. But the problem is we just don't know when his patience is going to run out. We just don't know the answer to that question. Now let me give you some stats, just for the sake of a few stats. Since 1973, 47 years ago, when Roe v. Wade happened, 
in the U.S., depending on, you can look at all kinds of different stats, this, they fluctuate here, up and there, but somewhere between 43 and about 50 million babies have been aborted in 47 years. I dare you to look up the ethnicities of all the babies. It's incredible. In, in 2017, abortions hit a historic low. In 2017, here was the low. Only 862,320 abortions, down from 926,190 abortions in 2014. Now, it's crazy to me. People would say, well, that's, what an improvement. Let me tell you something about God. He wants no abortions. None. Those babies are life. They're his life. And in Psalm 127, those babies are on loan to us. They don't belong to us. I wish I'd come up with this next thought, but I didn't. I heard this uh, apologetist theologian say this. What if? What if one or some of those 43 to 50 million babies that have been aborted, what if one or some of them would have come up with a cure for cancer? Or COVID? or whatever is plaguing you right now. See, God had a plan for them. Could we be aborting our future by aborting them? Possible. Possible. Now I have two more big thoughts. And one is an area that, frankly... As a preacher, I never delve into, never. Just, I don't feel God has told me to be that. But I'm going to delve in a little bit of it because I don't think I'm really delving into it. And if you disagree, that's fine. We're all grown-ups and I'm okay with it. I'm fine. But I just need to, I just need to ask the question because it's like, it puzzles me. Here's the first thought. Let me preface my first thought. Jesus wasn't political. Well, everybody wants him to be, but he wasn't. In fact, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, they wanted him to overthrow the Romans. He goes, no, we're going to overthrow the temple. You Christians need to repent of your sins. His mission was clear. Change people's hearts by sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also did not resort to violence or anger or getting in people's face screaming to force his truth down anyone's throat as you see in America today. He would never do that. He was against that. He tells Peter who slices off the slave's ear, put the sword away. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Ours is a message of love. He would never do what we see today. But the God of this world is blind to the minds of the unbelieving. So I get it. I understand. They don't see it the way I, you and I see it in the Bible. Now, <clears throat> but I have a question. It puzzles me. Really, well, I think I know the answer to it. But I, I just want to throw out there. Some of you are going to say, you're being political. I don't think so. I think I'm being 
spiritual, and moral. I'm going to make the statement, then I'm going to apply, and you, you decide, and it's up to you, but I think I'm just being spiritual and moral because I love this land, and I'm concerned for the future of it because of the amount, of, because of what's been happening for 47 years. Here's my question. Just you think about it. You don't have to make a decision right now. Just think about it. Why? Why the big, overdone outrage over the current Supreme Court nominee? Just think about the question. I'm not telling you how to believe. Just think about the question. Why? Here's what I want you to ponder within the question. Satan has always been in the business of killing babies. Always been. From Pharaoh to the Canaanites with Moloch to Herod to abortion in America and from a spiritual, moral perspective, but especially spiritual perspective, I think Satan is a little bit afraid. Because you've got a spiritual person they've nominated. You've got a believer in God. And from what I've heard is that she leans towards pro-life. The possibility that she could lean that court towards overturning the abortion laws in America. I think Satan's afraid. She's religious. People are outraged over this. I, have a, I just have a simple, maybe I'm just not getting it, but it's a simple question. When? When did religion or being a person of faith become so bad or terrible in America? When did that happen? In a land that was built on the Judeo-Christian ethic? What did, when did that happen? Illustration, before you get defensive. I, I see it as, a, as not a political issue. It's a moral, spiritual issue in the land that I love because I'm concerned. Here's my example. If I'm driving down the road and I see a person being beat up terribly and the person's not letting up and they're going to kill that person. As I'm driving up and I, and I see this happen, what if before I stopped to help that person being murdered there, I said to myself, hmm, I wonder if that person being killed there, I wonder what side of the aisle they're on. I wonder if they're Democrat, Republican, uh, Libertarian, Independent. I wonder what they are. You and I both know if that was us looking at that and we asked ourselves that question, we'd have to wonder if we're even human anymore. We would never ask ourselves that question. All that would matter is there's a life created in the image of God being extinguished. And it doesn't matter what political party. I would stop and save that life. 
That's a spiritual, moral issue. It's not political. It's not political. Now I need to say something. Follower of Christ, you need to remember what party you are of. The kingdom of God party. The kingdom of God party. And lest you forget that, and you think your candidate or candidates are the Savior, I think next time you better take a good look at their wrist to see if they've got nail marks there. Because if you think your candidate or candidates are the Savior, you're worshiping them now. And they're flawed. They're all flawed, like you and I. They're flawed. And if you worship a flawed individual, Psalm 115 says, you become like the thing that you worship. You become just like them. You become even more flawed. <laughs> no candidate, it's my Messiah. My Messiah is Jesus Christ, period. Period. That's my first thought. Second thought. The question. When will God's patience run out on the land that I love because of abortion? Because of what we're doing to babies? When? Now somebody out there is going to think to themselves, oh, come on, Jim, God doesn't judge till after we die. Sorry. That's final judgment. But God does make exceptions on this side of the grave and he judges people and nations on this side of the grave. He sure does. If you don't think so, go read about Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah. Look back at Jericho that we just saw. Go back. He makes exceptions. Now, I'm going to read a story of one of the exceptions. It's found in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. I'm going to read it. And then, um, then I'm going to explain it because it's an amazing story. It's historical fact. Belshazzar, now he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of Babylon as the book of Daniel opened. But now Belshazzar, the grandson, is now the king. The king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. Hmm. In order that the, kings, the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink for them. He's having a, a food and drunken bash for a thousand people and he has now taken the golden vessels that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple when he seized Jerusalem, the golden vessels, the holy vessels from the temple of God and now he's bringing them out and saying, let's just drink and eat out of these things. He's making them nothing. That's dangerous. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Hmm. 
Verse 5, suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. He's watching a hand emerge and write on the wall. And the king's watching this. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. It's interesting to me that this is a contrast of chapter 1 when Daniel would not eat off these golden holy plates of God and his face grew better. This man ate off the holy plates of God, defiling them, and his face grew pale. Interesting. And his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. He is panicked. What happened here? What's going on? Belshazzar thinks he can just do whatever with God's stuff and take God's holy vessels and drink from them, have a drunken bash. He thinks that he can just make God a zero and worship other gods. God says, not going to happen. Sorry. And so God, the hand emerges, God begins to write. And basically the writing, as you read the chapter later, he says, Belshazzar, you've been weighed, measured, found lacking, and your kingdom will be divided tonight. Tonight you will die. Tonight your kingdom goes down. It's a historical fact. Belshazzar's kingdom of Babylon went down that night. The Persians, they came in through the water tunnel, they diverted the water upstream, lowered the water, come into the city, they came in, they took the city. Belshazzar's having a drunken bash thinking, nobody can take the city. And the writing comes because you took those golden vessels and you made Yahweh God a zero. And so Yahweh God says, you make me a zero. You don't listen to what I say. I'm going to make you a zero. And you go down tonight. And he died that night. And the kingdom was taken. The nation ended. It was over. I'm not making a political point. This is a spiritual, moral dilemma. I'm concerned for the land that I love. Okay. Let me drive a few thoughts home to prove this point here. Leviticus chapter 18, 21 says this. It's God speaking. He says, You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch. There it is again, that idol Moloch where they put the babies alive and burn them alive on Moloch. You should not do that. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Don't be doing that stuff. Don't be sacrificing those babies. Leviticus 20, 2-5 says, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel, from the aliens sojourning in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. God's pretty serious about this. I will also set my face against that man, and will cut him off from among the people. You sacrifice babies, I'm setting my face against you, God says, because he has given some of his offspring to Molech, so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. Verse 4. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech, so as not to put him to death, 
Then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. If we don't deal with the situation in America, God says, I'll deal with it. Sacrificing the babies. That's what he just said. I'm not making it up. It's right there. You read it. Now watch this. 2 Kings 23, 10 says, He also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's the south side of Jerusalem. That no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Molech. The Israelites had been so corrupted by the culture around them. Once they got into the land, now on the south side of the city where they would burn the rubbish, they had an altar to Moloch. The Jews did, and they were sacrificing their kids, the babies to Moloch there. In 2 Kings 20 through 10. But here's the thing. In 2 Kings 23, 22 and 23, there's a young king by the name of Josiah. I named my son Dylan Josiah because of this king. He becomes king at age eight. In his late 20s, he gives orders to restore the temple, to renovate it. As they're going through the rubble of the temple because it's a mess, guess what they find? The book of the law. And they read in there the things about Molech. And what God says, you don't pass your kids to the fire. And this young man of king, he says, oh, we're going to stop that stuff now. And he tears down the idols to Molech and he stops the child's sacrifice. He does all that and he saves the nation. And he saves the nation. It's not political. It's moral. It's spiritual. It's a land that I love. It's a land that you love. Your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. What kind of world do you want them growing up in? Don't you want the nation to survive? This is the issue, man. The big question. How much longer? How much longer will God give the land that I love? if we don't repent. If this thing isn't stopped, how much longer? I pray for the land that I love. I pray for the land that I love. Now, I don't know if this really meant anything to you. If you disagree with it, I'm fine. I'm cool. still love you. I hope you love me. I'm cool. But I've laid out the truth for you. I give you a biblical foundation in case you never saw it that way before. It gives me great concern. So here's how I want to finish today before the band comes up to sing one last song. I just want to have a a little prayer meeting. And I'm going to pray. And hopefully your heart was shaken. Hopefully that Josiah King spirit was shaken in you to destroy the strongholds, to stop the, the killing of babies. And you'll pray. And you'll push for these things to be overturned. And you'll stand strong and firm. 
and go back to what David said, every child in the womb is alive at the moment of conception, created in the image of God. I'm going to pray. And at home, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your head in reverence to God. Because boy, do we need God. And let me pray. God, I pray for our country. We have been aborting babies for 47 years. Between 43 and 50 million babies have been aborted. Every one of those you knew in the womb at the moment of conception. Every one. Every one of them you had a plan for their life. Every one of them. Every one. Every one of them you ordained their days before they even lived a day. And so, and for 43 to 50 million, their days were cut short. They never got to see those days. We are living on borrowed time in America in my strong, strong, biblical, faith-filled opinion. How long? How long? God, turn this thing. I have watched, I have read the Old Testament so many times, I have seen where the nation had gone so immoral and so anti-God, and then it turned back to God. I've seen it. It's over and over again in the Old Testament. It can happen here. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle we're on. What matters is a life, a life being extinguished. And your party is the kingdom of God. That's our party. Our Messiah is Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. Never forget that. God, I pray that you overturn this thing. I pray that one day we'll see this thing overturned. I pray that the hearts of people that view the other side of this coin as the right thing to do, as their moral right, that their hearts would turn. I pray that we Christians would do our job and reach a lost world that's blinded by the God of this world. That's what I pray. I know that there's a spirit world behind the physical. I know it. That's what the Bible teaches. That there are strongholds and fortresses the enemy has set up. And I pray they are broken down by the spirit and power of God. We need to care again about the unborn child, God. We need to care again. God, we thank you, Lord. that you have left a great witness in us born-again believers, that we are the light that holds back the evil. Help us to live the light of the Word of God and not what we feel and not what we think. But let us live your Word and your will and live on that strong foundation of Jesus Christ.
amen and amen. Now we're going to worship one last song called Revival. This is a New Beginnings original. It will be released on all different platforms this weekend. You can pre-save it. Go on our Facebook page and pre-save it. It's a great song. So proud of our young people writing songs. And pretty soon we'll be put out our own albums. But here it is. And our own Mary's going to sing this one. So let's worship together with her. I'll be right back.
Well, we're glad you joined us, and we hope that this message challenged you. We hope this worship inspired you. There are many ways to get involved this season, to help others. We pray you take part of that. We are having service tonight, 6.30, right out here in the parking lot. Remember to pre-order that song, or pre yeah, pre-save that song. That's what it's called. Thank you for whispering that to me back there. Um, so God bless you guys. Thanks for coming, or thanks for tuning in. You have a great day. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.